This is the Bema Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we look at the next few verses in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus speaks of the relationship between his teaching and the teachings of the Hebrew Scriptures. Yes, siree. Every verse, we said. Every verse. So, well, and this one, this one's a really good one to talk about. I feel like this is maybe one of the most misunderstood uh, pieces of Jesus' teaching. Yeah, this is a good one. This is definitely a good one. Um, maybe just to remind ourselves where we've been, we've been talking about Matthew. Uh, we've been using Matthew. What has his agenda been? Uh, he's uh, talking about the mumser, the outcast, the unwanted. Like the normal, typical status quo. The religious status quo is not accurate to what the kingdom of God looks like, Matthew says. And the kingdom of God is much more about the people that we don't think are in it than we realize. So that's his agenda. While we're here, let's just review. What was Mark? What was his agenda? Uh, Mark was the Roman gospel. He's yeah. writing to the Romans. Writing to the Romans. He himself was a... Uh, he was a... Well, he wasn't Roman. Right. He was a... He was a Jew. He was a Jew. Yeah. Writing to Romans. Excellent. So Matthew's Jew to Jew. And then uh, Mark is Jew to Romans. <laughs> this is sounding very like... Corporate all of a sudden. B to B, B to C. It's uh it's, Jew to Jew. <laughs> Luke. Who was Luke? Uh Luke was writing uh an ordered gospel. Right. Possibly that, a parasha companion. Yeah. Uh with um let's see here. Parasha companion, and he was if we have a Jew writing to Jews and a Jew writing to Romans, Luke would be a, a Jew ish writing okay. to Jews. Okay. Proselyte would be <laughs> yeah. the word that we want to use, right? Yeah. Proselyte, uh, convert. So in their eyes, as Jew as they come, uh, once he's converted, he is as if he was born by blood. But he writes to, uh, we debate, but I, I suggested Goulder's work, a Jewish audience. And then we said, John, what would we call John? Um, hmm. That's good we're reviewing because I grafted. Grafted, yeah got a a tree and we have been Romans 11 uh, which we haven't talked about yet but we have been grafted into this tree or should I say Gentiles have been grafted into this tree um and uh yeah so those are a little little review so we're using Matthew the agenda of a mumser we started there we started in his genealogy we saw it in the Christmas story uh and, and then as the gospel gets set up I don't think that agenda gets lost um, and especially towards the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus begins, right before he begins to speak publicly, you have this, uh, these crowds, because he starts to bring kingdom. John the Baptist baptizes him. He is tested in the desert. Uh, John, the, John the Baptist is uh, arrested. And then Jesus takes up this mantle of his rabbi, possibly, who was possibly his rabbi. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. And as he brings this kingdom, not just the announcement, but he's also actually bringing kingdom with him. All kinds of people are showing up. Uh, remind us, Brent, of this group that shows up. They were from everywhere. Right. Uh, the Syri- typical people? Yeah, no, no. All the people who don't belong in the triangle. Right. Did it include the typical people? Well, yeah. They okay. were there, too. So you got, like, they're everybody. Not, like you would have the people you expected, but you also were surprised by everybody else. And you're like, well, wait a minute. And so in response to this, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes to a mountainside, a certain mountainside. He sits down. It says he sees the crowds. And he, in, in response to this diverse group of people, 
all responding to the kingdom. We suggested that his disciples were probably a little taken aback, a little confused, a little uneasy. You, I think he used the word uncomfortable. And Jesus calls them to him and he says, listen. And he, he starts the sermon with this, uh, these pronouncements that we call the Beatitudes. All these people that you think are not in, God's favor is with them. Like the kingdom of God is for them. Uh, everything is different than you think it is. And this fits Matthew's agenda and is apparently a, a central hinge point of Jesus's teaching here, uh, as Matthew tells us on the Sermon on the Mount. And so he makes these pronouncements and says, those people, uh, the kingdom of God is for them and kingdom of God is for those people and kingdom of God is for those people and those people and those people. And if you go take this message, if you believe in this kingdom and you want to start bringing this kingdom, you yourself are going to be persecuted. And then Jesus says, but don't you worry because it, this is the kingdom. And because of this, you will be the salt and the light. You will be the hope. We said the hope in the last podcast. You're the hope of the world because you're bringing kingdom. You're bringing shalom to a world in chaos. This world thinks it understands shalom and it's not working. Of course, the Roman way is chaos. But even this religious way, it's not shalom. It's just its own version of chaos. And so if you come to bring this shalom to the chaos, you're going to take it in the chin, but you're also going to bring hope. And that's what you're coming here to do. And so from there, uh, we pick up where we left off. So how about you read? We're going to do four verses today, Brent. That's how, that's how big our passage is going to be, four verses. Short and sweet. Short and sweet. Matthew five seventeen through 20. Big discussion. Big discussion. Small passage. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right. Now, uh, let's just start by explaining some context here. This is phrase about, I have come to fulfill the law. I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Now, when you are being raised in your uh, Christian worldview, Brent, what, what did that term mean to you? Like Jesus, Jesus came and fulfilled the law. What did that mean? That, well, I, I guess I ignored the part of the law altogether because I always thought of that as fulfillment of future telling prophecy. Absolutely. That's actually a great point. Like the way we typically talk about it, it's not even about the law at all. It's about prophecy, right? And so we just kind of use the law as this general blanket term to talk about the Old Testament. Um, I remember when I was growing up in the Christian world, like what, what was communicated to me in this discussion was uh, that Jesus had accomplished, like there was all these things. And it was, it was sometimes said a few different ways. Maybe it, maybe it was prophecies that Jesus needed to fulfill, but sometimes it was just like God gave human beings the law and he was expecting somebody to do it perfectly. And none of us could, cause we were all dirty, rotten sinners. And so Jesus came and like accomplished every rule that God laid out, which, which by the way, just as a PS doesn't even work because Jesus wasn't a woman. So he can't even fulfill the part of the law that talks about menstrual cycles. So he can't even, he can't, that, that can't even logically be true. Like no human being can do all the parts of the law because all the parts of the law don't even apply to you. 
but it was kind of communicated to me like almost like the law was a video game and with like six there's 613 commandments and there was like 613 levels to beat in this video game and jesus came and he did it like he beat all 600 he lived a perfect life he he was able to defeat all 613 levels of this video game and he fulfilled it he accomplished it he beat the game and for that reason we don't even have to play it anymore do you think the first 30 years of his life was like working through the different levels and then the last three were like a speed run like i'm gonna do all 613 in three years right now all i can hear is mario brothers theme music and then like getting the star like the little magic star that makes you invincible and Mm -hmm. just like watching jesus run through torah (laughs) so uh what was i talking about before we got on to that wonderful little gym uh, yeah, so this is not like Torah, that whole like Jesus came to defeat, like beat the game for us. He came to beat the law, to fulfill it and accomplish it all. This assumption that if he did, like somehow we wouldn't have to fall. Like, I don't even know where that idea necessarily even comes from. It doesn't even make logical sense to me. But that's certainly not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus, the the, the mitzvot, that's the Hebrew word for good deeds or good works or commandments, you could say. The mitzvot, it's plural. The mitzvot is not a game show. Like, it's not a challenge to be accepted and completed. It's not like going to your local burger joint where it's like, eat this whole burger, get your meal for free. Like, that's not what Torah is. Um, So this idea, we need to adjust it. And we need to adjust it, as we always do, to its original context. Because when a rabbi talks about fulfilling and abolishing, he means something in particular. When a rabbi says he's fulfilling Torah, it means that he is interpreting it correctly. Now, that's bigger than we even hear it in our language. Because interpretation is not just about mental, intellectual, theological, academic explanation. That's merely a part of interpretation in the rabbinic world. Like, yes, you have to be able to look at the law, interpret it correctly, do the legal, they would say the law, the legal work of interpreting the law. But then in order to fulfill it, you actually have to walk that interpretation out. Your behavior, your they would call it your walk. We've talked about the desert before, your walk. Your halach is the Hebrew word. Your walk has to match your interpretation. So first of all, you have to interpret it correctly, like, I mean, my, my words are failing me here. You have to interpret it intellectually correctly, and then you have to back it up with your behavior and your obedience and your walk, and then you are fulfilling it. If you don't do that process, it's called abolishing. You are abolishing Torah. Now, you can abolish Torah by, A, interpreting it intellectually incorrectly, because if you interpret it incorrectly, it doesn't matter how you live it out, you've got the wrong interpretation to begin with. But you could also abolish it by interpreting it one way but not walking it out correctly. Either option, you're not fulfilling Torah. To fulfill Torah means to interpret Torah with your mind and your heart and then to walk it out with your life. When Jesus says, I have come to fulfill Torah, he's saying, I have come to take the books of Moses, the teachings of Moses, and yeah, I think we could say the rest of Tanakh. I've come to take the Hebrew scriptures and I've come to walk them out correctly purely without mistake in front of you. If you want to see how to interpret your Bible, he's not talking about accomplishing anything. He's looking at the world around him and saying, I'm showing you how to read your Bible correctly, not just with your mind, although that's included. 
I want you to read your Bible correctly with your mind, and I want you to read your Bible correctly with your life. And I'm showing you, I'm telling you and showing you how to do that. And that's called fulfillment. So I wonder if the accomplishment thing is kind of mashed together from the following verse where it says, you know, nothing until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Absolutely. He's not saying that until I accomplish everything, but until everything is accomplished. Right. So is that, do you think that's like... Are people just mashing that all together? Probably. Uh, Yeah, probably in a sense. But what's interesting is the very next two verses. Like, go ahead and read the second half of that passage right where you just left off and watch what he does with this. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Right. And so whatever's being accomplished here, what's being accomplished is the fulfillment of Torah, not the setting aside of Torah. He he says that directly in the very next verses. This is about me showing you how to live this correctly, interpreting the, the law with your mind and your heart and your feet correctly. Almost like we talked about the heart, the soul, and the very in the in the desert, like Shema, um, that whole journey. I'm teaching you how to walk it out with your whole self. Uh, so that's absolutely um, what's going on there. So I also want to ask about, I think um, the law part makes sense. There are the 613 commands. Jesus isn't uh, abolishing them, but he's fulfilling them as we understand that in a new right. way. Yep. Uh, but he says, he says, uh, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, right? But to fulfill them, right? So how do you how do you fulfill a prophet? How right. does that work? Because and that's I, not like a, a you know like a command. Sure, right. And I would I would, you should link our discussion on uh, Third Isaiah um, because this would be a perfect example, perfect example of what your question is. Because we talked about the suffering servant discourse, and we said when we talked about Isaiah fifty three. He was pierced for our transgressions, uh, struck for our iniquities. By his stripes, we are healed. This whole passage here that we're like, oh, Jesus. And we tried to say, yes, Jesus, but not primarily. This passage is not about Jesus primarily. This passage is about Judah. Like if they will be, if they will persevere in their faithfulness, people will be saved through their faithfulness. But then when it gets to be 700 years later, Jesus could just as easily look at his listeners and say, I'm showing you how to walk out Isaiah 53 with my life, which, yes, will ultimately culminate in beautifully um, uh, potent ways in the cross. Uh, But Jesus's whole ministry, his whole life is going to be a walking out of Isaiah 53. Um, And and just pick your book. What about Amos? What about the call for Amos to let justice roll like a mighty? Jesus would say, if you watch me, I will, when we talked about the baptism of Jesus a few podcasts ago, Brent, we talked about Jesus saying, I have to do this, John, because why? What was Jesus' words to John? John says, I shouldn't be baptizing you. And Jesus says, no, I need to do this to what? Fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all, what is, what is he, now we have some more pieces, but to, together with that, he's saying, I'm doing this to show you what righteousness to fulfill. What does fulfill mean? To show. I'm doing this to show you righteousness. So when I take on the waters of baptism, I'm doing this to say, if you watch my life, 
you will see correct interpretation and obedience to Torah. So take the prophecy of Amos, take the prophecy of whatever we're supposed to learn from Jonah. We've talked about Jonah. Take uh, the prophecy of, uh, I don't know, you pick one, Haggai. Uh, You pick one. Uh, Zechariah. Zechariah. Whatever it is about the apocalyptic literature of Zechariah, the message that Zechariah is trying to communicate to his audience, we can see lived out in the life and ministry of Jesus. He is the perfect example, the fulfillment of all the calls of scripture. And he says, if you watch me, I will walk out the scriptures correctly. Okay, so follow up to that. Why does he not talk about the writings? Why is it only the law and the prophets? Great question. Because the writings aren't even canonized at this point. They are in the process of canonizing what we would call the Ketuvim at this point in history. There's only one reference, and it comes much, much later in one of the later Gospels, and now I'm blanking on which one. You will have one reference to Jesus saying the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And I think some translations actually say writings. I'd have to go back and check that. I see you working. I bet you're searching for it right now. But there's some reference to the the prophets and the writings, the prophets and the Psalms, the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And there's only like one or two, but there's only a few references. And it's because they haven't even been canonized in their Hebrew scriptures yet. They exist. The Psalms exist. Proverbs exist. The book of Esther exists. They just haven't decided what they're going to do with this thing that will eventually become the Ketuvim. Did you find it? Yeah, it's in Luke 24. Okay, so Luke would be, according to my theory, the last gospel penned. So if it's that late, we finally do have ketuvim. We finally do have writing. So read the verse that you found. Uh, He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And the Psalms. There you go. Okay. So there's there's your reference to the three. So that's why he doesn't reference those. They don't technically even exist at this point in the Sermon on the Mount. And if Matthew's the first gospel written, they definitely, they're, they're in process. Um, let's see here. So if this is what Jesus is saying, like I've come to show you how to live out Torah correctly. My question is, why does Jesus make that statement? Like in that point on the Sermon on the Mount... Why does Jesus make that statement? Like there must have been an assumption. The only reason he would say it the way that he does is if there's assumption that he's actually coming to abolish Torah. Because he says, do not think I have come to abolish Torah. That must mean there must be people going, like I picture them scratching their head going, okay, so are we supposed to ignore Torah? Now think about what he just got done saying. Picture the, if the disciples are uncomfortable, picture all the religious people that could be watching Picture his disciples, if that's who he's talking to directly. Picture all of them, and they're watching this diverse crowd, and the pagans are showing up from the Decapolis, and people from across the region from across the Jordan. you got maybe, I don't know, Zealots and Sadducees. You've got the Pharisee bunch in there. You've got all these people coming together, and they're going, well, this isn't right. Like, this isn't what God is doing. And Jesus, like, talks to his disciples, and he says, no, 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 all these people are in And you're going to bring kingdom, you're going to be the salt and the light and the hope of the world by pursuing this pronouncement of truth. I think their response is, oh, so I guess what the Bible said isn't what we're, are you, are you tossing out the law? But Jesus actually says, absolutely not. In fact, quite the opposite. I've come to show you what the law was always intended 
to show us. I've come to show you what the law was always intended to say. He is fulfilling it uh, in his interpretation. Um, let's see, I got some, I have some notes here. Let's see here. Uh, this is a great place to realize that the teachings of Jesus, uh, for now, particularly the ones we're looking at in the Sermon on the Mount, are so radically different that people might be tempted to assume he's throwing out Torah or teaching against some of its writings. But Jesus is clarifying that, in fact, he is fulfilling it in his interpretation. This is a hefty claim, as Jesus would be saying, that this is how God has always intended it to be interpreted. From the moment that Jesus gave this law to Moses on Mount did I say Jesus? From the moment that God gave Moses this law on Mount Sinai, this was how God intended for humanity to read it. This is how they should understand it. Obviously, they didn't have the language. They didn't have the knowledge. They're 2,000 years in the, in the past. But this is what God's intent always has been to teach humanity with Torah. So, so what is it that makes uh, Jesus' interpretation so radical? I think we've already seen it. What did we say was the heart of the Beatitudes, Brent? Like, what what is it about what Jesus is saying that people would go, well, that's not what Torah teaches. Like, what was the center of the Beatitudes? You remember? Uh, it was peace, wasn't it? Almost. Kind mm-hmm. of. It's shalom. Shalom. <laughs> shalom to chaos. Um, but uh, what were the two? There were, there were two Beatitudes that sat in the center. Mm. There was a little bit of a, uh, my stomach's grumbling. I, uh. I have a grumbling spiritual stomach because I hunger and thirst for because I hunger and thirst for righteousness and and what was the one that followed it? Well, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, I'll tell you how to find righteous righteousness. You're going to show mercy, mercy, right? So Jesus's assertion was righteousness looks like mercy, and and he's preaching this to a world that is being oppressed by the Romans. He's not preaching this to a bunch of oppressors. Not that that's, that's, there's not a place for that. Don't mishear me. But his message is to the people on the underbelly. And he's saying, oh, do you want to know what righteousness looks like? It looks like mercy. He's going to go on to say, you want to know what, what, what this whole kingdom thing looks like? It looks like love. It looks like love of your neighbor. It looks like love of your spouse. It looks like love of even your enemy. It looks like love. It looks like mercy. It looks like forgiveness. Like this is not how the typical person was taught to read Torah in his day. And he's saying, this is how you're supposed to read it appropriately. So the question is now whether or not we believe Jesus is who he said he was, because he is, uh, if he is who he says he was, then his teachings will give us much to wrestle with, uh, as they will come with an authority that we've never seen with human interpretation. And that word authority is actually how I want to close out our podcast today is um, this teaching of authority. Uh, any, can you remember what the word for authority is, Brent? Shmicha. 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 The way I spell that, by the way, again, transliteration, and I always spell it differently than everybody, but for me, S apostrophe M-I-C-H-A. Shmicha. S apostrophe M-I-C-H-A. Shmicha is the word that the Hebrews use in the rabbinical setting for authority. 
Like when Jesus says he's not here to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, he goes on to do that very same thing. So if you look at the next portion of your Sermon on the Mount, we're going to actually read it in the next podcast, but look at all the paragraphs that come next. What he says is, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say unto you, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say unto you, that is a phrase, this you've heard it said, I say unto you phrase is a phrase that rabbis would use in Jesus's day, but they in order to use it, you had to have shmicha. You had to have rabbinical authority. There's a whole lot that we don't know about history, and we've yet to put all the pieces together. But what little pieces we know and what appears to be going on in the Gospels seem to validate this. Prior to uh, the day in AD 70, where Akiva started the formal office of rabbi, he ordained formal rabbis. Prior to that, we had lower lowercase r rabbis. We just had teachers. There was, there was no formal office of capital R rabbi until after the destruction of the temple. So before that day, you had just teachers. But there was a system that we've talked about before that kept you from just interpreting whatever you wanted. You could not just pick up your Bible and just say whatever you wanted. You were bound by the interpretations that came before you. Like you were bound by whatever your rabbi Like, you were not allowed to teach something new that your rabbi hadn't taught unless you had been given authority to teach that new idea. Now, your new idea still had to be in line with all the previous teachings. But the only thing you were allowed to do in this rabbinical system was pass on the teachings of your rabbi, unless you had shmicha. Now, how did you get shmicha? Well, you got shmicha by having two rabbis that already had shmicha laying their hands on you publicly and pronouncing that you too had shmicha. So the great question is, Brent, did Jesus ever get shmicha in the Gospels? Where, where Can you think of a story where I've, Jesus maybe got some shmicha? I feel like I'm cheating. I, you've heard this material before. <laughs> uh, but it just happened recently. Okay. Right before this teaching, basically. Yes. Yes, and the, and the text we were looking at happened at his what? His baptism. His baptism. And we have two sources that give him shmikah. Who's the first person to kind of pronounce that Jesus has shmikah? John the Baptist. Now, the question immediately arises, did, did John the Baptist have shmikah? And here's the cool thing. We don't, there's no way to say John the Baptist had shmikah. We don't have a record of John the Baptist getting shmikah. But the one thing we do know is that he had, at the very least, what I might call rogue shmikah. Like he had natural shmicha. We're told multiple times through the Gospels that the crowds loved this guy, that people couldn't come after John because they feared the crowds. Like John had been given because of who he was, the weight of his message, and the significance of his obedience and his walk, he had been given shmicha. Whether formally or informally, he had shmicha. And so he pronounces maybe rogue informal shmicha on Jesus. And we need a second validation. So where would that second validation come from? From heaven. From the voice, right? Which, by the way, if God is ever the one who gives you shmikah, that's a pretty good resume. Pretty good. Pretty good Pretty good source content there. Um, so so John and God kind of validate Jesus' shmikah. If you ever need to like wrestle that through, there's your reference to Jesus getting shmikah. But the one thing we can say from the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is certainly operating like somebody who has shmikah, because you don't get to say, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say unto you, unless you have shmikah. Like you don't get to re, you can only say, you've heard it said, do not murder, 
my rabbi told me this is how we need to interpret that passage. Jesus just got done saying, I'm telling you how to interpret Torah. And now he's following up by saying, and I've got kind of a, it's not like a brand new out of left field, but I'm taking, nobody handed me what I'm about to hand you. I'm stepping into the role of shmicha, and I'm telling you how to appropriately interpret the scriptures. And in fact, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you have a passage. We're kind of jumping ahead. Don't worry. We'll catch every verse. But Brent has a passage from the very end of chapter 7. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, read us what it says. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. All right. Blatant statement there about... They were amazed. They're all looking at each other going, wait a minute. He can't do that. Where did he get a shmicha? Does he have shmicha? He can't teach that without having shmicha. They're amazed because he's teaching as if he has shmicha, not just as a typical teacher. Uh, He's stepping into a role that they didn't realize that he had. Now, what I love about that, I actually have some notes here that I want to read because I chose my words really carefully. Um, Like we've pointed out previously, Jesus is trying to make the case that he is not here teaching something outside of Torah. Instead, he claims to be here showing the world how we were always supposed to be reading it. According to the rabbinical claims of Jesus as a teacher, his teaching of Torah is what God was really after when the law was given at Sinai. This is important because it shows God is not here to change game plans. He's not here to do away with the Jews or take their place away. He is here to throw the blinds open to what has always been true. Jesus is here to clean up our understanding. And this is actually a more profound wrestling match than we might realize. Uh, because I think when we, when we listen to Jesus' teachings, I think so many Christians are like, man, that's deep, that's profound, that's mystical, that's rabbinic, that's Jewish. I don't really know what he means. And so we kind of like put it in this place of like, Jesus' teachings are these great ideas to kind of think about, but we don't put them as like teachings with this great authority because we're Western, he's Eastern, we're Americans, he's a Jewish rabbi. And we just like, oh, wow, Jesus and his teachings. And we kind of put them in like this weird other box rather than hearing them as these are the teachings of our rabbi. Uh, Brian McLaren had a quote, one of my favorite quotes. He once said, Christians have made Jesus their Savior, but Paul their Lord. I have always been convicted by that because Paul is easier to read for us. He writes these Greek letters to groups of people using imperative language. He's not functioning in the same kind of rabbinical sense that we read about Jesus in the Gospels. He's just easier to understand. And so we gravitate to Paul's teachings and we let Paul inform our reading about Jesus rather than Jesus informing our our reading of Paul. And that is really important because I think the Apostle Paul would roll over in his grave if he ever sensed that we were doing that. And he would say, I'm not the rabbi. Jesus is the rabbi. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. As I follow Christ. Absolutely. Uh, And that's a pretty big just wrestling match to chew on. So uh, just some closing thoughts. See if you got any questions at the end of this. One must be confronted with the authority of Jesus in the gospel accounts. Everything that the follower of Jesus interprets in the Bible has to be seen through the lens of Jesus. When Jesus says, listen to this, when Jesus says that the right way to interpret the text is through love God and love others, you are now forced to read your Bible through that lens as a follower of Rabbi Jesus. You do not get to disagree. You don't have, I don't have, Brent Billings does not have the shmicha. 
Jesus kept all shmicha in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. I don't give it away. Thank you very much. It's his authority. We are not allowed to teach something new outside the lens of Jesus. Jesus is our interpretation. From a Jewish perspective, we don't have that kind of, uh, no amount of chutzpah grants us the ability to do that. For some readers who thought that my treatment of the conquest and the book of Joshua was too far reaching, this is an example, by the way. What about how I dealt with Joshua? Some people are like, boy, you're kind of sure are reaching. Please consider that whatever interpretation of the book is, it must be aligned with Jesus's yoke of love God and love other people. Jesus said that all the law and the prophets are interpreted through that lens, period. Paul will say, all the teachings of the scriptures hang on the commandment to love other people. Whatever the book of Joshua is about, the book of Joshua is about loving people. That's how we have to read it. Whatever we're supposed to learn from the book of Joshua is supposed to make us more loving of other people. As a follower of Jesus, I have absolutely no other option. I work, we, all of us that claim to be followers of Jesus, we work under the shmicha of the rabbi. It's my words there, Brent. Got anything to follow up there? I do have one question. Since, oh, okay. since we uh, brought in this closing portion of the Sermon on the Mount, I noticed something. Okay. Because uh, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount here on the podcast. Correct. And also, uh, real life where I work, uh, we did a, a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount uh, recently. So I've had a lot of Sermon on the Mount in the last few months. Right. And we make this really big deal at the beginning on the Sermon on the Mount that all these crowds are coming in. Jesus sees them. He goes up on the mountain and turns to his disciples and teaches all this stuff. Correct. So the Sermon on the Mount, it's not its not about this, you know, this huge crowd that he's preaching to. He's talking Correct. to his disciples. But then at the end here, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed. So what happened? And I love that you point that out in this passage. Um because now I get to wrestle back the other direction. I'll tell you what my journey on this uh, topic has been. Years ago, when I went to Israel the first time, I actually argued with Ray on the on the Aramos Tapos Mountain here. We taught about it. And I, I was under the impression that great crowds gathered to listen to Jesus. And I said, Matthew tells us this story in such a way that we see the crowds. And Ray pushed back against that. And he said, that's fine. I'm not telling you you're wrong. But that's not how a rabbi would teach, not this kind of teaching. He would teach this to his disciples. And then he, he made me pull out my Bible and he made me read the verse. And I had to read the verse and he called the disciples to himself. And I sat there like a dummy and went, oh, man, I can't believe I didn't know my text. And now I sit here with your question years later, let's see, a decade later, going, oh, man, I still didn't know my text. Because if I would have known my text, I could have answered Ray with having him read that verse. And ask, and and I'm sure it's not a, okay, well, which verse comes first or whatever, whatever. You get to read that. But Matthew is certainly playing off of this idea of the crowds. And so even though he calls the disciples to himself and a true, like if you're a true apolog, uh, uh, apologist and you need to make these things consistent and you need to make the details work or else you can't sleep tonight, it's very easy to say the crowds are around Jesus. Jesus calls his disciples and he teaches his disciples personally while everybody else listens. Yeah, it's a completely legitimate reading. Nothing wrong with that. That might be exactly what happens here. 
But it's also true that Matthew is certainly playing off of this idea of the crowds and the pronouncement of the gospel and Jesus teaching these different groups of people how to live. So however you want to read that, I I love the fact that you point that out because I think, I just wish I would have had that verse in 2008, the first time I had this argument. Well, I didn't have it at the beginning of our discussion on the Sermon on the Mount either. So dang it, I'm, I'm in no better of a place. Yeah. The things we learn getting in the text. I mean, and I don't know, like... Is this the kind of thing where Jesus is spending the entire day, like he's saying a chunk and then he kind of pauses and lets the disciples mull it over a little bit. (laughs) Maybe they break for lunch at some point, or is it like, you know, a 30 minute monologue? Yeah. And there's all these options to what it could be. And I think most scholars say our best option is this was never actually given in this one like historically, Jesus never sat down and gave this whole teaching all at once, but it's how Matthew wants to record it. Uh, he probably gave all these teachings on multiple days and multiple locations and multiple spots. And Matthew is pulling it together as one sermon. For some of us, it might make us uncomfortable. That's totally cool. Um, but then we just wrestle with, yeah, how else was this delivered? Was it delivered in one? I, I memorized the Sermon on the Mount once, and I feel like reciting it kind of at a normal pace took me about 25 to 28 minutes good, decent, you know, good Western American sermon length. So did he, did he do it in a 28 minute chunk? Did he do it? Like you said, over the course of a whole, was there discussion? Was there somebody from Decapolis raising his hand in the back going, excuse me, what does that mean? You know, I, I don't know. It's, uh, or were they just listening in and like, you know, yeah. there's one representative from each group. Who's right. kind of like leaning over a disciple's shoulder, right. listening in and then they go back and report. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So Good many, questions. So many possibilities. Yeah. More questions than answers. As always. Definitely. It means we're doing it right. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, uh, I think that'll do it for this uh, somewhat more lengthy episode. Lots of questions. Lots of great things to talk about. Uh, Jesus should do that to us. Yeah. Without so, a doubt. So get in a group and uh, bring up your own questions. Uh, there's discussion groups all over the world. You can find that at baymontdiscipleship.com. You can get a hold of me and Marty. You can pose your questions to us, uh, whatever works. But ask the questions. Dig into the text. Uh, Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Mm